Hello and welcome to Cumber Baptist Church Podcast. The following is taken from our evening service, Sunday 12th of May 2019. This evening we are joined by Pastor Clifford Morrison, who takes his reading from Mark, chapter 10, and brings us a message entitled, Solid Joys. If I were to give my message this evening a title, I would simply entitle it, Solid Joys and Lasting Treasures. A line taken from One of John Newton's great hymns, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. The story of the rich ruler in Mark's Gospel is also recorded in Matthew and Luke's Gospel. And if the message of this encounter between Christ and the young man is to be grasped, it must be understood and interpreted in the light of the startling pronouncement that Jesus made in verse 15 of Mark 10 that we just read, I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And in these words, Jesus taught a truth here and still teaches the same truth through his word by his spirit that we must never lose sight of. We have here an eternal instruction, an unchanging directive, and it is this, that we come into the kingdom of God as helpless, dependent children. It is absolutely necessary in order to receive eternal life. It was Augustus Toplady who wrote those words, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. It is the only way of salvation, even though it offends many people this evening. Jesus Christ is the only means by which we can enter into the kingdom of God. We must come as dependent children, casting ourselves upon the love and mercy and kindness and goodness of God. And in contrast to the teaching of the Lord Jesus in verses 13 through to 16, this young man is the very opposite of a helpless, dependent child. Look at the appeal appeal of the seeker here. Matthew tells us in his account that he had great wealth. Luke identifies him as a ruler. Here was a young man who had both affluence and power. In all probability, he was envied by his friends. He seemed to have everything going for him. Money was no problem. He had the latest in everything He was the aggressive, self-assured, and brimming with confidence. He was what we would call in today's world an achiever. He set his goals and seemed to have no trouble whatsoever in achieving them. In many ways, he was a good young man, a young man of exemplary character. He appeared to do the right things and say the right things. Impressed with the teachings of Christ and amazed at his power and authority, he's determined to meet with him and put something to this teacher that had been troubling him for a long time. When you read the gospel accounts of this encounter and put them together, you note certain things about his, about his approach. He ran to Jesus. He fell on his knees before Jesus. And Matthew and Luke's account of the meeting would suggest that here was a young man of importance within the synagogue, which makes his approach to the Lord Jesus all the more remarkable. 
Because many people in positions of authority, especially those connected with the Jewish establishment, were becoming increasingly hostile to Jesus. This young man showed an eagerness to learn. As I've already intimated, as a young man, he was as rich and as influential as any young man would want to be. He sensed a need in his life and had the good sense to come to Christ to find out more about it. He didn't come seeking material benefit or physical relief as others had come. He had inherited wealth, position, and influence, all the things that many people covet, but he had not inherited eternal life. So as rich as he was, he was poor. And as great as he was, he was lost. Listen to what he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? His basic error was revealed in what he said, because a person does not inherit eternal life. An inheritance is something we receive as a bequest from someone outside of ourselves. But not only have we the appeal of the seeker, we have the approach of the Savior here. And often Jesus answered a question by asking another question, and he did that on this occasion. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Are you saying I am good because of what I am doing? Are you saying I am good because I am God? Do you recognize in me a goodness that is unique because I am not just a good man? I am God. Clothed in humanity, I am the promised Messiah. And if I am God, and you realize that, then what you're going to do with the truth that I'm about to... What, you're, then what, am, what are you going to do with the truth that I'm about to confront you with? Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And in certain so-called evangelical circles, here was a young man ready to sign the card, ready to raise his hand, ready to walk down the aisle or whatever. Some would say he was eager and ripe for conversion. Here was a candidate for salvation, if ever there was one. But notice what happens here. Instead of taking the young man at face value and asking him to make a decision for Christ, Jesus went much deeper in searching out the state of his heart and testing the true purpose and motivation of his innermost being. Instead of rejoicing that the young man was apparently willing to receive eternal life and encouraging him simply to pray a prayer or affirm his faith in Jesus, he asked him a question in response that the young man was maybe not prepared for. The Lord seemed to be abrupt and offhanded with this eager inquiry. Why are you asking me about what is good? And here was a question that revealed the great truth about our Lord, and it was this, that he can read the hearts of all men. You see, he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is omnipresent. 
He is here this evening by His Spirit. That's what makes our coming together so worthwhile and so significant. We're not just in a building that has been set aside for the proclamation of the Word and for the praise of His name. We're not just in the company of one another, but we are in the very presence of the living God. And that should have a bearing on how we think, how we respond, how we react to the Word of God. But He is not only omnipotent and omnipresent, He is omniscient. He knows all things. John tells us that, reminding us at the close of chapter 2 that when Jesus was in Jerusalem, many believed in the miracles which He did, but Jesus did not commit Himself uh, to them because He knew what was in man, and He needed not that any should come to Him and testify to Him concerning man. There is only one that is good. That's what Jesus said. And here was a truth that was designed by our Lord to reveal what this young man really thought about Jesus himself. Did he realize that the one whom he was asking about, what he meant when he said, there is only one who is good? Did he realize that the one whom he was asking about what is good was himself the only one who was good because he was God. Had this young man come to Jesus for divine help because he believed that Jesus himself was divine? And when you put all the bits and pieces together from Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, it seemed certain that this young man viewed Jesus as no more than an especially gifted human teacher. He had come to the right source for the answer to his question and the fulfillment of his need, but he didn't recognize who Jesus really was. And you will notice in reading the story carefully that Jesus did not respond by showing him the way of salvation because this young man was missing an essential quality. He lacked the sense of his own sinfulness. And Jesus had to point that out. Notice what he did. This is very important. The Lord Jesus took him to Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai was the place where the law was given. Jesus took him to the law of God, to scriptures that the young man was familiar with. And he said, if you want to enter into eternal life, obey my commands. Jesus was saying, you know what to do. You're a learned and devout Jew. You know what the law requires. Go and do it. And the young man said, which one? And the implications of what he was saying seemed to be, I have read the commandments many times. I've memorized them when I was a small boy, and I've carefully kept them ever since. How could I have missed any? Which ones do you have in mind? And Jesus responds by quoting five of the Ten Commandments, and then he added the second greatest commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And no words of Scripture could have been more familiar to this young man, but he failed to grasp the significance of the message. Just as he failed to realize who Jesus really was, God himself, and the source of eternal life, he failed to see that all those well-known commandments and all the other commandments could not provide the life which they pointed to. Matthew tells us if a person were able to perfectly keep all the commandments throughout his entire life, he would, he would indeed have life just as Jesus said. 
And I believe what the Savior was trying to show this young man was that no one is able to keep all the commandments perfectly, not even one of them. And we need to understand that because there's many people out in the big world tonight who believe that somehow or other, if they can do their best to keep the Ten Commandments, that will get them into heaven. But because of their fallen nature, because of sin, they cannot do that. None of us can do that. The Lord hadn't mentioned the first four commands, uh, commands which center a man's attitude toward God. On the first and greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. These commandments are even more impossible to keep than the ones Jesus quoted. You see, here was a young man who needed to be brought to Mount Sinai. He needed to sense and see his own sinfulness, but he didn't. All these have I kept since I was a boy, since my coming of age at my bar mister. He was sincere, but he was wrong. He had never come to see the, the true state of his heart, and so Jesus probes a little deeper. Jesus, we are told, looked at him. It was an intense look. It was an in-depth look. It was an informative look. Jesus loved him. His love for him was genuine. His love was sincere. His love was strong. And Jesus looked at him and he said, One thing you are lacking. One thing you are lacking. You see, the young man's view of the law was merely external. It was man-centered. Because he had not committed physical adultery or murder, because he was not a liar or a thief, and because he did not blaspheme, the Lord's name, or worship idols, he looked upon himself as being all right. Virtually perfect in the eyes of God. What am I lacking? What am I lacking? Maybe there's a command I haven't heard of. Maybe there's something in addition to keeping the law that is required for eternal life. It never occurred to him that he fell short in his obedience to every part of the law of God. His outward human Observed life was upright and attracted the applaud and the appeal of men and was approved by his friends and family. But his inward state could have been described in the words of the Savior as being full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. He would not admit to himself that lust is a form of adultery, that hatred is a form of murder. That swearing by anything in heaven or earth is a form of taking the Lord's name in vain. And it certainly never occurred to him that whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it, according to James 2 and verse 10. And like most of his Jewish contemporaries, he totally failed to see that the Mosaic commands were not given as a means for humanly achieving God's standards of righteousness, but were given as a picture of God's righteousness. And the law of God was given to show us how impossible it is for any of us to live up to God's standards of righteousness in our own strength. Obedience to the law is always impossible and imperfect because the human heart is imperfect. And this young man failed to recognize the true state of his heart before God. Here was the outworking of 
Jeremiah's observation when he said, The heart is deceitful and above all things desperately wicked. Here was a young man who was aware uh, of what he did not have and needed to receive eternal life. But he was not willing to admit what he did have and needed to get rid of all of it, and that was sin. He didn't see his sin. He didn't see himself as a sinner. And there are many people tonight who fall into that category. There are many people offended when you share the gospel with them because they do not consider themselves to be sinners, fallen sinners, part of Adam's fallen race. Here was a young man who had too much spiritual pride to acknowledge that he was a sinner by nature and that his whole life fell short of God's holiness and was an offense to God. He had no hatred for sins that needed to be forgiven and there was no admission of a heart that needed cleansing. Rejecting any thought of sinfulness and repentance, the young man bragged about having obeyed the Ten Commandments all his life. He considered himself as a perfect candidate for eternal life. But he got a response from the Savior that he didn't expect. One thing thou lackest. One thing. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come. Take up the cross and then follow me. And with those words, Jesus, who knew him better than he knew himself, exposed his heart, uncovered his self-righteousness, and highlighted his sin in love for money. The Bible doesn't tell us that money is the root of all evil. And often I've met people, and they say, doesn't the Bible say that money is the root of all evil? And I say, no. They say, yes, it does, it does. I've read that somewhere. No, you haven't. What it does teach is that the love of money is the root of all evil. And the young ruler wanted Jesus to show him how to have eternal life, and Jesus told him that the price was giving up his illusion of self-righteousness, recognizing himself as an unworthy, wretched sinner. And he failed to see himself as he really was in the blazing light of God's eternal holiness. And like most Jews of his day, and like most people in all times and in every culture, he firmly believed that his destiny was in his own hands. And that if his lot was to improve, it would be as a result of his own efforts. All that he wanted from Jesus was a word that said, keep at it. You're doing well. Roll up your sleeves. Work a little harder. Pull up your socks and run a little faster. Just make a little more effort. You're almost there. If the Lord had given him another commandment, another formula, another rite or ceremony by which he could complete his religious obligations and make himself acceptable to God, the young man would have thought, okay, no problem, let's go. But it's not like that. You see, salvation is for those who despair of their own efforts. Salvation is for those who realize that in themselves they are hopelessly sinful and incapable of improving. Salvation is for those who have broken God's law and who cannot keep it, and who confess their need of a Savior and turn from their sin and cast themselves on the mercy of God. William Chantry has written a book based on this 
encounter. He calls it today's gospel authentic or synthetic. And he says this, here is the greatest personal worker, evangelist, soul winner, preacher at work, namely the Lord Jesus. Bringing the man to the holy law of God. Explaining what Paul writes in Romans 3 and 20, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And people believe the opposite. People believe if I say the Lord's Prayer every night before I go to bed, if I memorize one commandment a week, and after 10 weeks knew all the commandments off by heart, then I've made it a fair way up the ladder into heaven. But Chantley says, only by the light of the law can the presence of sin in the heart be exposed. Listen to what John says. Everyone who sins breaks the law. Lawlessness is sinfulness. And the word sin makes no sense apart from God's righteous law. How could this young man understand his sinfulness if he completely misunderstood the law of God? How any person can look upon himself as a sinner if they are ignorant of the fact that they have broken God's holy law and failed to fulfill its demands upon them? What was the point in offering this young man salvation? He had only a vague awareness of his danger. He certainly didn't think of himself as a lawbreaker. He didn't see himself as a sinner under condemnation. And you remember what Luke tells us, that Jesus had come not to call the righteous. Not to call the righteous. Why? Because there were none who were righteous. He had come to call sinners to repentance. Chantley says, when you see that men have been wounded by the law, then it's time to pour in the balm of gospel oil. It's the sharp needle of the law that makes way for the scarlet thread of the gospel. Let me say that again. It is the sharp needle of the law that makes way for the scarlet thread of the gospel. The gospel is for those who realize that they have nothing, absolutely nothing good to give to God, that anything good they receive or accomplish can only be by his sovereign, gracious provision in Christ. There's the appeal of the seeker. There's the approach of the Savior. There's the agony of the soul. The young man wanted eternal life on his terms and was not going to submit to the claims of Christ and the Lordship of Christ. He would not admit his sin or deny himself. Jesus is on his way to the cross. The road that he was traveling on was the Calvary Road, and he told his disciples that they walked with him on that road that the Son of Man must suffer. Many things be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then he said this to them. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man, even a young man, to gain, listen, 
the whole world. Not part of it, not some of it, but the whole world. And yet lose or forfeit his soul. See, here was a young man who wanted a crown without a cross. Here was a young man who wanted a salvation without sacrifice. Here was a young man who was not willing to count the cost. Jesus says, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then follow me. And the account says, Jesus, looking upon him, loved him, and said to him, you're lacking one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and accompany me walking the same road as I walk. And at that, the young man, his face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. What a strange mixture. How could you be sad and have great wealth? Great wealth and great sadness. It's a strange combination. It seems strange. The world would say, that's what brings gladness. That's what brings joy. That's what brings happiness. The more you have, the happier you can be. He went away from Christ, holding on to this deception of his own self-righteousness and grasping his money and possessions, which were perishing. He couldn't sing, didn't sing. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than of riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. He was saying the very opposite. Listen to what Paul says to young Timothy. He says, Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Here's the verse. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And this rich young ruler is one of many. Again, to Timothy, Paul writes, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything we need for our enjoyment. The appeal of the seeker, the approach of the Savior, the agony of the soul, the authority of the Scriptures. Jesus, let him go. He didn't say we need to get this young man into the kingdom at any cost. He didn't say we'll try and meet him halfway. We'll give him what he wants. In the business world, people say that the first rule of successful merchandising is giving the customer what he wants. If they want bigger burgers, make bigger burgers. If they want design-labeled bottles, give them to them. 
Keep the customer satisfied. Keep them on board at all costs. Modify your product and your message to meet the requirements if you want to succeed and reach the top. And sometimes the church is buying into this worldly market. The church services are too long. The sermons are too confrontational, judgmental, and discomforting. One church ad read as follows. Informal, relaxing, casual atmosphere, great music from our band, and those who come will have fun. That's how church advertised its services. Well, that's fine if you're running a coffee house, but when we call people to trust Christ and take up the cross daily and follow him, keep this story in mind. Today we have Christianity for consumers. The message is watered down and the gospel is diluted to make it more acceptable and popular. The tragedy is it is worse than worthless because people who listen to this watered down message think that they are hearing the gospel, think that they are being rescued from eternal judgment when in actual fact they have been tragically misled. The true gospel is a gospel to self-denial. Jesus is not some glorified genie with a lamp who jumps out and says, you can have whatever you want, give me your list and I will deliver. Can the rich be saved? Yes. Can the poor be saved? Yes. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord can be saved. Jesus says, pay very careful attention to what I'm going to say to you. And he repeats that again. He says, it's hard for people like this young man to be saved, self-made, self-assured, self-confident. Who then can be saved? You see, wealth was considered a great blessing from God. Jesus was teaching that wealth can be a serious barrier to the kingdom of God. If even the rich cannot enter the kingdom by their own efforts and generosity, what hope is there for the poor? And in sheer bewilderment, they asked the question, who then can be saved? And Jesus replies, with man, this is impossible. Just as it is not merely difficult but impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, it is not merely difficult but impossible for men to please the Lord and come into the kingdom on their own terms and by their own efforts. But wait a moment. I haven't finished. Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. And because God is able to change sinful hearts, it is possible for him to save helpless sinners. God can do what man cannot do. Salvation is impossible with men, rich or poor, be they as rich as this disappointed young ruler or as poor as the beggar called Lazarus. Salvation is beyond purchase. It's beyond money. It's beyond price. It's beyond all standards of human religious morality, good works and self-effort. But what is impossible with man is gloriously possible with God. You see, salvation is God's idea, planned by him before even time began, provided by him at infinite cost and offered to one and all as a gift of his grace. This rich young ruler went away without eternal life because he sought it on the impossible basis of his own human resource and goodness. And if anyone seeks eternal life on that basis, they will never find it. He went away sad, having great wealth. Augustus Toplady puts it like this, solid joys and lasting treasures 
are those who can sing, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply, to thy cross I cling. Naked, I come to you for dress. Helpless, I look to you for grace. Foul I to that fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I'll die. So near, yet so far. So rich, yet so poor. So good, yet so bad. So wise, yet so foolish. Oh, tonight, may we experience the grace of God and know solid joys and lasting treasures in Christ and in Christ alone. May the Lord bless his word. We thank him for it in our Savior's name.